Opening question. Here it is. We're good at this, so we're going to talk about it this morning. Whoa, I can't even spell. Complaining. Complaining. Where does complaining come from? Like, why do we do it? Number one, discontent. Okay? Y'all should have lots of bullet points this morning because I know we got lots of complainers up in here. So where, do, where does complaining come from? Pain. You said expectations? Unmet. Expectations. Does your wife complain a lot about you? No. <laughs> I have a... Uh, Never mind. Anybody that needs marriage counseling, I have a thing. Unmet expectations. Okay? Where else? Boredom. Is that what I heard? You just get bored, so you want to complain? How do you spell boredom? D-O-M? Boredom. four words. Couldn't find one, so we did four. So I complain about others because I actually don't like myself. Or I'm discontent with myself, so I actually project it upon others and complain about them instead of actually dealing with what is wrong inside my heart. I think that may be the number one winner that nobody wants to admit to that is probably the most relevant. Like, go back to the Mama Mia Pizzeria thing. It was funny one time. Like, if you have a business, uh, the reviews that you get on, uh, on any sort of site, you know, um, you, I give you four stars, five stars, and then they tell you why. Um, like, I remember one day she, she shared, it, it was her or somebody else downtown, they shared, like, this person had never been to my business, had never stepped foot, had never bought anything, had never allowed us to serve, but yet they gave us a one star and then complained about us. And you just think to yourself, that person that wants to complain about a business they've never been to doesn't like themselves. And they just want to take it out on somebody else. Like, right? There's a lot of reasons that we complain. Um, I want to make a point this morning as we kind of begin to jump into our text. Give me a, a little bit of leeway to have a little on-ramp this morning. Perspective Perspective. Here's another word for us. Perspective. Perspective goes a long ways against complaining. Perspective can go a long ways against complaining. And knowing the past, knowing what has come before us, can go a long ways towards gaining perspective. So sometimes we can eliminate complaining by learning what's happened before us, gaining proper perspective. There's a picture that I got here that I 
yanked off Facebook. There was a, a post that has circulated um, over the last number of months. Maybe you've seen this picture. Uh, I shared this a number of months ago as the one productive thing I found on social media in the last six months. This was it. This was it. There's a picture here um, circulating. And here's the gist of the post. It says this. Imagine you were born in 1900. Imagine that you were born in 1900. When you're 14, World War I starts, and it doesn't end until your 18th birthday. 22 million people killed in World War I from your 14th to the 18th birthday. And as if that's not enough, later in the year, Spanish flu, here's our image, Spanish flu epidemic hits the planet and runs until you are 20. 50 million people died in those two years. 50 million people. And actually, that lady's mask, I wondered, I was like, what? wear a mask or go to what? <laughs> that could have said a number of things. I found the rest of this picture somewhere. It says go to jail. It said jail. Right? It could have, could have said a number of things, but it said jail. So, y'all tracking with me? That could have said. Didn't say. Didn't say it. Uh, anyways. Spanish flu, 50 million people died by the time you're 20. When you're 29, the Great Depression begins. <laughs> Things are looking up. Unemployment hits 25%, and that goes till you're 33. So that's a pretty awesome four years. When you're 39, World War II kicks in, uh, and you're not even 40 years old yet. But when you're 41, the U.S. is fully pulled into World War II. Between your 39 and 45th birthday, 75 million people die in the war, and the Holocaust kills more than 6 million. At 52 years of age, the Korean War begins, and another 5 million die. At 64, the Vietnam War begins. 4 million people die in that conflict, and as you're 75 years old, the war finally ends. So, think of everyone on the planet born in 1900, and ask yourself, how do you survive all of that? Right? And, like... It makes the point. It says, kid born in 1985 thinks that their 85-year-old grandparent doesn't understand the difficulties of school. Like, kindergarten is so hard. <laughs> I just, just want to slap you, right, for your complaining. Because your complaining lacks perspective. You lack perspective because you don't know everything that's happened before you. Um, and... and Tyler will confess that I might have said a couple complaining things about masks and about things along the way. But when I see that, I'm like, <sighs> like we're the first, pe first people to have to wear a mask in history, right? Um, so perspective. How do we gain perspective? Understand what happened before us. It's interesting how petty a complaint can become in light of perspective through history. Like when I read that and I look at that and I think about all the conversations Tyler and I have had at work, I'm like, ah, man, I'm an idiot. Like all my moaning sounds ridiculous at this point. Every hardship we've endured over the last six months sounds really petty when I look at what our grandparents went through who were born in the early 1900s. It's insane. Inspe uh, perspective goes a long ways. So, all that say this, that's what Paul does in chapter 10. In chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, Paul, the Apostle Paul, who helped start the church, spent 18 months in Corinth with the people of Corinth, uh, helped a number of people come to faith, 
helped organize what is now the Corinthian church. He leaves, and now he's writing a letter back to them to encourage and instruct. And by the time we get to the chapter 10, <clears throat> he's pointing uh, and pointing the church to consider the history of God's people. He hopes that they will gain healthy perspective. So in chapter 10, Paul's actually saying, let's go way back. Let's go way back. And he says in verse 6, he says, these things happened, the things in God's, hist God's people's history, uh, these things happened as a warning to us so that we would not crave evil things like they did. And then he goes on in verse 11, he says, these things happened to them so that they could be examples for us. Right? So he keeps talking about these things that happened in the history of God's people, and he wants to draw these things into the minds of these people so that these people might gain some perspective, and maybe it'll help. Maybe it'll help. So one of these things was the time that a bunch of people died from snake bites. Hmm. <laughs> Tanya apparently doesn't like snakes. Go with me to Numbers chapter 21. It's in the Old Testament. Numbers chapter 21. Here's a test. Who can find the book of Numbers without the table of contents? Apparently, I'm at a loss. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Yep, it's before Deuteronomy. You've got to say it in your head. Numbers 21. I just made you feel better. The pastor had a hard time. He had to say the list of books in his head. Uh, so there's hope for you yet. Numbers chapter 21. A bunch of people die from snake bites. We're going to find that. And this is one of these things that happened that Paul wants people to say, this happened and that should help you have a little perspective because it happened as an example for you. It happened so that it might instruct and direct you so that you don't crave evil things like they did. So, uh, Numbers 21, we're going to read verse 4 through 9 together. It says here, Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to bypass the land of Edom. Uh, but the people became impatient because of their journey. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you led us up from Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread or water, and we detest this wretched food. Then the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and they bit them so that many Israelites died. The people then came to Moses and said, We've sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Intercede with the Lord so that he will take the snakes away from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Uh, to intercede means he prayed for, prayed on behalf of, went between the people and God to be a representative for them. And then the Lord said to Moses, make a snake image and mount it on a pole. And when anyone who is bitten looks at it, he will recover. So Moses made a bronze snake, mounted it on a pole, and whenever someone was bitten and he looked at the bronze snake, he then recovered. Okay? Uh, so I know you're all guilty of this, and anybody who determines their daily Bible reading by holding up their Bible, closing their eyes, and opening up to a random page and said, that's what I'm going to read today because the Lord led me there. 
if you did that and you land in chapter 21, you're, you're, you're asking like Paul Harvey, I wonder what the rest of the story is. Because that's a really random thing to open up to. Guilty of that, aren't you, Derek? That's how you determine your but The Holy Spirit's going to lead me to the right page. Sometimes he will. I've heard some really cool stories about that. But it causes a lot of context confusion. Uh, so Israel recap that leads us to Numbers chapter 21. <clears throat> God called a man named Abram. Abram was an old man with an old wife. They had no kids. God says, Abram, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. His wife laughs, but then she becomes pregnant. They have kids. Uh, they multiply. They become a great nation. And then one of the promises to Abram was that he would bless Abraham so that he would become a blessing to the entire world. And he was also going to give them this land that that nation of people would live in. Problem is, a number of years later, uh, they find themselves slaves to Egypt. And then God calls a man named Moses and said, Moses, I've remembered my promises to Abraham, and now I'm going to use you to set those people free so that I can fulfill that promise to those people. A lot of things happen. He goes to Pharaoh. Pharaoh throws some fits. God sends some plagues. The people leave Egypt in this mass exodus. I get it? It's the book called Exodus. Leave in a mass exodus through the Red Sea, which God parts miraculously when they get to the other side of the sea. Egypt is eagerly chasing after them, and the sea collapses on them, and Egypt drowns. Um, they spend the next number of years in the wilderness. Uh, they were on a two-week hike to get to that land that God had promised them, but because of a, a number of circumstances, including the fact that they were terrified to follow what God had said. I'll give you this land, go in, take it. And they're like, well, those are some big dudes that live there. I think we'll not. So because of their unbelief, they wander around in circles for the next 40 years. Interesting thing is God miraculously fed them from oatmeal that came from heaven. I think all oatmeal comes from heaven, but this oatmeal came from heaven. I don't think it was really oatmeal. It was more like a bread... Substance, they called it manna. But I like to think of it as Quaker instant oatmeal that it only took one minute to cook. Um, but he fed them daily with this manna. Unlike Quaker instant oatmeal, it went bad after 24 hours. So they would have to throw that away and God would miraculously send food the next day. And they would go pick it up and they'd eat. And then it'd go bad. They went through this every day for a number of years. But it was miraculous to see how God fed them. They were able to receive water from rocks. Incredible how there was living water coming up just where they needed it. Um, so there's the whole history right there. And in chapter 20, right before what we read, uh, chapter 20 reveals the death of Aaron. Who is Aaron? He's Moses' brother, number two in charge. He's one of the main guys that helped lead them out of Egypt. In chapter 20, Aaron dies. People are depressed. They went into a time of mourning and sadness and weeping. Uh, and they, they just come out of that and come out of that time of mourning the death of Aaron and here we are, remember, 40 years into a two-week hike, and the destination is just north, and here we find ourselves going south. Now, 
in verse four, the people grew impatient. It's like, dang, 40 years into a two-week hike, number two is dead. Like, if we go that way, we'll be there in a couple skips. But here we find ourselves going down again, south again. Now we're a little bit irritated, Moses. We're a little bit perturbed. We're a little bit impatient. Actually, they've been impatient for 40 years, but here they are again. So, let me ask you this question. And I don't know if we're going to discuss this or if I'm just going to ask it and you're going to think it. At what point did you grow impatient? At what point did you grow impatient? And you may be thinking to me, impatient towards what, you ask? And I would respond to you, whatever it is you complain about. (laughs) Whatever it is you complain about. Why? I say that because... Impatient people are complaining people. Complacent, impatient people are complaining people. So at what point did you grow impatient? Complaining stems, like you guys said, from a sense of discontentment, maybe pain, and I've been hurt. There's unmet expectations. That is the number one reason my wife complains about me. I'm going to go back to that. We have this expectation assessment. It was really a profound moment in our marriage. I have this list. If I've ever done pre-marriage counseling with you, you've done the expectation assessment. Now, I do this in two different reasons. Number one, before you get married, so that you can know what's going to attempt to derail your marriage. Your wife is not a complainer. The fact of the matter is she had expectations that you have not met. And therefore, she's just simply vocalizing them over and over and over and over. Right? So, or I do it with marriages that are struggling. And when we take the assessment, they're like, oh. I did not know why I complain about you so much, but now I have something to know, right? I was hosting a marriage conference for our ministry. I had done everything to gather a getaway for the weekend. Uh, We had taken, I don't know, 50 people, 25, 30 couples, and we had spent a weekend in the woods teaching and encouraging and doing all these things. And here's the profound thing. In the middle of that, my wife became very irritated towards me to the point that I don't think we were even talking as I was hosting a marriage conference. That's profound. And when we at the point in the middle of the marriage conference, took the expectation assessment, she finally realized why she was not happy with me. (laughs) Unmet expectations can create a lot of complaining. They are a very powerful thing. Um, So, complaining, discontentment, pain, unmet expectations, boredom apparently, uh, an internal wrestling match, with my own self. Complaining stems from like this sense of superiority or deservedness. Like these are my expectations and I deserve to have them met and when they are not met, then I'm going to complain to you about those. Um, So at what point did you 
become impatient. That's what we saw with the nation of Israel. They thought they should have been there quicker. They were discontent with the direction of the leadership. They were tired of eating Quaker oats from heaven. And all these things stirred up and built their complaints. Verses 4 through 6 reveals something that I think will be very helpful for us this morning. It says they set out from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to bypass the land of Edom, but the people became impatient because of the journey. And what do you do when you're impatient? They began complaining to Moses. They began complaining to God. Why have you led us from Egypt to die in the wilderness? Right? There's no bread, no water, and we have to eat this wretched oatmeal. It wasn't oatmeal. I just can't get that out of my brain. By the time Israel was, and, and then we see that the people came to Moses and said, we've sinned because why? The Lord had sent poisonous snakes among the people and bit them so that many of the Israelites died. By the time we, Israel was watching their own family perish by snake bites, they were not a victim of the circumstance. They were a victim of their complaining. I think this is really helpful for us this morning. Israel, like imagine sons and daughters watching moms and dads perish in this wilderness setting, or even worse, moms and dads watching their children perish because of these snakes that had bitten them. They were not victims of their circumstance. They were victims of their complaining. It was their complaining that had stirred God's need to give a response. Your circumstance, here's my point, your circumstance will not defeat you, but your constant complaining will. I think we see that in the text, that your circumstance will not defeat you, but your constant complaining will. Here's a Funny little illustration to get the point across. A guy named Arthur Bundridge um, got a snake bite when he approached a Syracuse, New York bank teller and he demanded $20,000, right? He had his finger gun. <laughs> Give me $20,000. And he had his corona mask on too, I think. And he said, Give me $20,000 to the bank teller. And when he got home, he discovered that he'd been shortchanged. It's like, ah. Oh, they didn't give me 20K. So because they didn't give him the full 20K, he's obviously outraged. Why? Because he had unmet expectations and now he's hurt and discontent. So he rushes back to the bank to tell them what he thought of their service. And they arrested him. And they arrested him. He was not defeated by circumstances. It was his complaining that finally did him in. Okay. <laughs> so what do we do? So what do we do? We do the same thing that Israel did. We make a replica of a snake and we put it on a pole and we all look at it. No, look at verse 8. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake image and mount it on a pole, and when anyone who is bitten looks at it, he will recover. So we make a replica of a poisonous snake, attach it to a pole, and all who are bitten will live if they simply look at it. And it, just picture this with me. In a camp of over 
I say over a million. They had 600,000 men of fighting age. Times that by two and then throw a bunch of kids in the mix. I'm saying over a million people, but I'm saying that's probably 1.5 million people in this camp. This is not your family camping trip. In a camp of over a million residents, we find one snake hung high on one pole. We have men, women, and children who are suffering, and they would be brought through the camp constantly being told to look up, look up, look up, in hopes that their suffering children, their suffering parents, their suffering friends would catch a glimpse of the snake so that they might live. Can you imagine the... uh, the movement and the desperation that they would be traveling throughout this. How much space would it take to house 1.5 million people? And we've got this one snake high on a pole. And they know that if they can simply catch a glimpse of it, they would be healed. The very symbol of the curse that they had been stricken by became the symbol of their healing. Right then. The symbol of their curse became the symbol of their healing. And I can only, you just have to sympathize here. You assume it would sound like a strange thing. Like, Mike, if you would just see the snake, you'll be, we've got to get you to the snake. We've got to get you to the pole. Like, can we be honest for a second and say, that sounds a little strange. And I think it might sound strange. Even as you're dragging your friends, you're dragging your relatives through the camp in desperation, hoping that you can catch a glimpse. And it might sound strange until, until that friend gets up off his mat and he walks away and lives the rest of his life. Like at that moment, you don't care what it sounds like. You're just astounded at the healing that has been revealed. Jesus assures us of the historical accuracy of this story. Like in John chapter 3, Jesus refers to this story. Yet he affirms that it was never intended to point us, or it was intended to point us towards a greater type of healing. He says in John 3, The Son of Man has come down from heaven, and as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him shall have eternal life. John chapter 3. Just like Moses lifted up the bronze snake, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, and you will not just receive healing for this life, you will receive eternal life when you look upon the Son of God lifted up. Jesus took on flesh, the symbol of our curse. Like even used all throughout the scriptures as evidence of the curse. It's the flesh against the spirit. Like the sins of the flesh, the Galatians chapter uh, 5, he holds up the flesh and the spirit. Why? The flesh is corrupted by the curse. It's doomed to die. We know that the flesh is the symbol of the curse. And Jesus, being in the very nature of God, took on flesh the vi- the, he, he became, the invisible God became visible by taking on flesh, by taking on the symbol of the curse. And he was lifted up, 
placed on another wooden pole and eliminating the curse of sin and death for those who would cease looking around to gain their perspective and instead look up. Let me slow down there. Jesus was lifted up, placed on another pole, so that all of us, when we get tired of looking around to gain our perspective, and we finally look up to him, we might receive eternal life. Is that not the source of our complaining? Is that not the source of our discontentment? Is that not the source of our pain? Is that not the source of our unmet expectations, our boredom, and our internal struggle with myself because I constantly look around to gain my perspective? What are you doing? What are you doing? What are they doing? What's happening out here? What's not happening in here? And I look around through social media. I look around through the towns and the shops, and I gain all of my perspective by looking around Round. But Jesus says, if you'll just look up, you might receive eternal life. I will overcome it all. Because if you only gain perspective by looking around, you're cursed. You're cursed. But it's the new perspective that we get by looking up. Look up to the cross. What do I see? I see his love. For you, not a love that's not just spoken, a love that is proven by his death that brings you life. And then also it's scriptural that we look up to the heavens. Why do we look to the heavens? Because that's where your real life is hidden. So we look up to the cross and his love is proven to us there. We look up to the heavens where my life is kept with him and will be revealed when he returns. Or you could just look around. Like that's our options. You can look up and receive life or you can look around and gain all of our perspective by what we see around us. That is completely up to you. Completely. I want to end with a story. Um, Tyler and I were working this week. Uh, We were finishing up a remodel that involved like a kitchen and a living room. So we're like these two rooms going on together. We're finishing up the living room portion of the remodel uh, and we had like this eight-year-old video game superstar that had been locked into the TV the whole time we're doing this. He was a lot of fun uh, to joke back and forth with. But he's sitting there uh, playing Minecraft. And then all of a sudden, he's like, I want to go to the kitchen. Like, I want to go to the kitchen. And the problem was he looked around. He looked around, and he saw me and Tyler had the whole kitchen blocked off. Like, fresh tile. We got doors spread out all over the place. And like, he's like, I can't get to the kitchen. But I want to go to the kitchen. I want to go to the kitchen. So, to get to his destination, here's what he did. He actually exited the side door of the house into the backyard, and he disappears. I'm like, huh? I guess our video game store is gone. But then, come to find out that he exited the side door house, and then he jumps in through the window of his parents' bedroom, 
And then he travels to the hallway, which down the hallway and into the kitchen. At which point, Tyler and I were just finishing up cleaning everything that had previously been in his way. And profound, this is the most profound thing that I think has happened in the whole time we were on that job site. He looks at us, and he looks at the traveling that he had just done, and he's like, huh, that was it? Like, I could have waited on that. And I'm like, And I'm like, in that moment, I knew there was a sermon there. I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, but you didn't ask. Like, you gained all your perspective of what was going on because you looked around. You looked this way, you looked that way, and all you saw were obstacles. So instead of just asking, hey, when will you guys be done? In 30 seconds. You wasted all your energy and all your time fighting against the perspective that you created by looking around. If you would only have looked up to me and simply asked, I could have relieved you of all of that. All of it. Israel was on the doorstep of their destination. Their perspective got the best of them as they looked around. They're like right there at the promised land, soon to enter, soon to claim it, soon to live there, soon to rest. They're on the doorstep of it. But they looked around, and they didn't like the perspective they had, and they began complaining, they began moaning, they began fighting. And I know that it's tempting to crack under the pressure of all you see from your perspective. There is a lot of things that we look around and we do not like about what's going on right now. You can look all around. And if that's the perspective that we have, I know it's easy to want to crack under that. But I wonder, and I'll leave you with this. I'm not leaving with this. I'm leaving with I just wonder what you could be on the doorstep of. Like, What could you be on the doorstep of? What might you miss as you look around? And what might you gain if you look up? I don't know. I don't know. You can look up to the cross where his love was proven for you. You can look up to the heavens where his life, your life is kept with him. Or you can look around. But I wonder what you'll miss because you could be on the doorstep. It's the most incredible, life-changing, restful season of your life. But as you crack under the perspective, you crack under the weight of what you see around you, you may never receive it. I don't know. Complaining. I feel like we're getting better at it every day. I feel like we are. They were not destroyed by their circumstance. They were destroyed by their constant complaining. I fear the same could be true about us if we're not careful. How do we defeat complaining? 
We gain perspective. How do we gain perspective? Look up. Look up. Look to the cross. Look to the heavens. Everything in our history that's been done for us. Gain our perspective. Receive eternal life. I'm going to pray for us. Uh, Then these guys are going to come lead us in a time of worship. Those of us that are in person will kick this stuff around. Getting feedback, thoughts, what God's stirring in our hearts. How we can encourage one another. Uh, Those of you that are online, thanks for being with us. Um, We look forward to seeing you in person soon. Uh, Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for, as Paul said, all these things that have happened in the history of God's people.